You're listening to the Nourish Joy Podcast, episode 50. What if we all believed the human body was actually created to be healthy, that it wanted to be healthy? How would our thoughts change, our feelings, our habits? I'm Megan Dorman, a nutritional therapist. And I'm Haley Erickson, a mental health therapist. We're sisters and besties. We're sisties. We're here to break down big issues of the body and mind into bite-sized, delicious nuggets. And we would love to hear from you. Submit your questions or feedback to podcast at megandorman.com or follow along on Instagram at megan underscore dorman. There will be a post there each week with a call for questions and you can ask anything in the comments. Here's a quick disclaimer. Everything we say on this podcast and all content on our websites or social media is intended as general information only. Consuming our content does not constitute a client relationship. The general information we share is not a substitute for professional medical or mental health advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're live. This is it. Yay! Sorry, guys. We're recording for the first time in GarageBand. We've never used it before, and Haley is a a Jill of all trades. She's figured it out. (laughs) I don't know about that. I had help from our editor. I know. We had to to text our producer cousin and say, how do we do this? (laughs) But this is episode 50. This is our one year anniversary. This is our anniversary episode. So nice. So I, romantic. I know. It's not lost on us that there are 52 weeks in a year, but we took a couple vacation days. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> episode 50, one year. Yeah, exactly. Set expectations and meet them closely. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's how I feel. Yes. You don't have to meet everything exceedingly. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, I don't know about you guys, but it's been an incredible year for us, and I posted on my Instagram and Facebook page last week asking for questions because we really wanted this anniversary episode to not be so much focused on us. We did do one episode like that where it was questions about our lives and our marriages and our sister relationship and our kids and Um, So we have done a previous episode where it was just kind of like things you might want to know about us, but we wanted this one year celebration to be about our listeners and creating um, just hopefully some value for you guys. Because one of the coolest things about a podcast is that the people who are listening, they they don't necessarily need maybe full time our one on one in you know, in person practice uh, skills or trade, if you will. They just have these questions and that the podcast itself can answer and so hopefully you can go backwards and look up a whole crazy ton of topics from anxiety to parenting to gut health to celebrating you know to watching what you eat on a holiday yeah like there's just so many cool things out there that you can access yeah absolutely so that's the theme of this whole episode is that we wanted to celebrate you guys and thank you for being a part of this community and this podcast journey that we're on as sisters as we enter our year two as podcasters um i think i've i particularly have learned a ton in terms of how to how to get the episodes out to people and make sure people know about it and, um, you know, just a variety of things. I think we've gotten better as we go. So hopefully here too will be even more, even more better. Plus this may be the longest standing commitment other than our marriages that either one of us have ever done. It's so true. I mean, like so we true. have met weekly for a year. I know. And I can't even say that I brush my teeth every single but- day. <laughs> Girl, me neither. So this is pretty good. That's one of Eric's favorite questions when we're getting into bed. Did you brush your teeth today? I feel like I should ask Jake to ask me that. And half the time I say, nope, not gonna. (laughs) (laughs) 
and don't even ask me about a shower. That's a da- that's off the table. Oh, Eric wouldn't be married to me. He doesn't care about the teeth, but the showering is a must. The if he touches my skin and it like is remotely tacky, as though like a bead of sweat has ever Go. formed on get it, in the he's like, mm, no, you need to get in the shower. <laughs> I don't even know how you can live with yourself. But <laughs> anyway, so we're proud of ourselves and we're thankful for you guys because it's been really helpful to. Yeah. Hear your feedback. And just to give you kind of a preview of what the next couple of months will look like, this is Haley's last episode for a little bit. For a little bit. She made another human. Well, I'm making it still. I mean, yes. It's I'm not growing fingernails it's as not, we speak. It's not breathing oxygen yet. Yeah. But yes, but hopefully he's coming any any time now, really, really, really soon. And and as a result, I have no idea what to expect about having two children. So if you have two kids two years apart, especially if they're two boys, <laughs> feel free to send me encouragement because I might be freaking out. <laughs> yes, we will, we will take all of the encouragement and tips that we can tips, get yeah. from moms of two boys. I don't get offended. You know, yeah. I just don't. I appreciate the help. We'll take the village. Real quick before we start, can you... <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Can you please explain to our audience why when I came over, I noticed that your arms were gashed up. I said, um, I'm sorry, did you fall? Listen, <laughs> listen, what is what is so great about what's happening on my body is that it's pure evidence as to why women are actual superheroes. That's right. That's right. I have a mark on all four of my appendages perfectly <laughs> where I caught myself from the most epic slow motion fall of the century (laughs) thanks to my toddler and you know days before birth of my now soon to be infant and it was really interesting because I tripped on my toddler because they dart yes and they just never know where they're going and they're constantly in front of you and so I tripped (laughs) over him while we were at church and I started to catch myself on the wall. Even my husband was like, oh, she's got it. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> she don't got it. <laughs> she don't got it. Then I'm going down. I catch myself again. And then, oh, she's got it again. Oh, oh, no. And then I'm on the floor. <laughs> oh, no. It was so sad. But I protected the belly. And thank goodness you were wearing jeans. He already ripped jeans. But they already ripped jeans, yes. And not a dress. And it was <laughs> you went down with your... It was really funny and embarrassing, and I was mad for like 15 seconds, and then I got over it. Oh, I'm proud of you. (laughs) So proud of you that you rallied. It's very alarming to see road rash on a pregnant woman. Well, the nurses in the (laughs) delivery room might have to give me an antibiotic for all this. Some Neosporin or something. It was a high school carpet that you you fell onto. Yeah, there could be some disease in there. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Let's Let's do it. Let's do it. So... We got a variety of questions on Instagram, a couple on Facebook, and several that were private messaged to me or emailed to me. And really coolly, a couple of them actually were kind of along the same lines. They were um, really similar to each other. So I'm just going to read the first couple. Do you want to start with this one that we talked about? Sure. So let me get the wording right, because our first one came from one of our listeners named Clarissa on Instagram. She posted, I would love to discuss staying motivated and positive and self-loving when you're doing something new or something you aren't good at yet, like getting back into the gym, learning a new skill as an adult, even making new friends as a grown-up. It's all about that balance of self-love and acceptance while also pushing for more and always learning and growing. It's tough stuff. And what I wrote back to her was, this is probably the aspect of wellness that I am most interested in and passionate about. So Haley's got some thoughts to share in just a second, but I... And there was there was another question that was relative to that one, yes, kind of about negative self-talk in general that we received. 
And the person was describing to us what, how do you get out of that funk of that negative self-talk cycle, basically, that just keeps on spinning? She wrote, this becomes a very emotional issue for me, yet I feel I'm always stuck in a vicious cycle. Yeah. Specifically to the way that Clarissa worded hers, the reason I said I felt like this is something I'm super passionate about is because... I have journaled and prayed and thought and researched and read long and hard about what I call the intersection between acceptance and improvement. It is, that is just like the tension of life and wellness in particular for me, because it's good, it's noble, it's virtuous to be somebody that wants to improve themselves, that you want to learn more, you want to grow as a human, you want to become a better parent, wife, human, whatever it may be. So to grow and improve is is to be admired. And actually, we have a podcast episode where we literally talked about exactly that. I can't think of the exact number right now, but if you're subscribed to Megan's uh, emails, when she sends out her weekly newsletter, she'll, she'll post in there what is the number that we talked about that exact thing, the intersection between self- love and self-improvement. Yes. Yes. I'm super passionate about this. So talking, talking about that, like Clarissa posed it and then merging it with the other one that you read that came in via email about, you know, sometimes we can kind of get into these negative self-talk, like vicious cycles. What would you say if somebody was in your office? Yeah. So I think this is one of the most common things that I see actually in my office, at least at the root. So if somebody comes into my office, um, they may come talking about anxiety-related symptoms or depressive-related symptoms or relational issues or parenting issues. Whatever is the reason that they're approaching, we can almost always tag it back to, and we've talked about this on an earlier podcast, basically a belief system that's rooted and that these symptoms, if you will, that you're experiencing are often rooted in, I should say. And the belief system almost always is your inner critic or what you believe about yourself, basically. And you may have valid, total, uh, reasonable reasons. I hate that I said that, but, you know, (laughs) genuine reasons um, as to why you have this belief system about yourself. Valid. Valid reasons. Um, But I said valid. Anyways, um, it's rooted in this belief system that may have come from basically years of abuse from a parent or a spouse or yourself uh, or a a boss or something, you may have, you may have had experiences that implanted this belief system in in you that you then began to believe because it was what you knew and, and have never gotten out of it. So when we talk about this inner critic, that is going to cycle out to Clarissa's question, which is that of, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I push myself into new experiences? Um, when, there's basically that fear factor, that fear component. Okay. So let's talk about the critic for just a second. Um, here's the crazy thing about the critic is that it often is disguised as a motivator. So like you see it, for example, in the gym, like, come on, Erickson, get your crap together. Like just lift it. Don't be a baby. Don't be a wimp. Don't be a wuss. Okay. The hope is how you're speaking to yourself is going to motivate you to lift more weight in that scenario. Right. And we do it not just in the gym, we'll say, for example, I've heard you say things like this where you're trying to motivate yourself. You'll say about like finishing a task or um, starting something. You'll be like, okay, don't be lazy about this, Megan, or Mm -hmm. don't be um, a procrastinator. Yeah, Yeah, whatever. So it's not all bad because sometimes that negative line of communication can be what promotes us um, to move the dial, if you will. But the problem is, is that it, it doesn't, 
it has a bigger chance, especially if there's a root system that is some kind of negative belief system, it has a bigger chance to demotivate you over the span of time. Yes. So immediately it might get your butt off the couch. But long term, it's perpetuating this moving wheel, if you will, that you are a procrastinator or you are lazy or you are not strong enough or you are a quitter or whatever it is that you've got in your head. Right. Yep. Does that make sense? So that's really not the best way to to silence or tame your inner critic. I think the, the, the biggest thing is to not have the goal to silence it, right? So the critic itself is not a bad thing, right? I mean, think about movie critics. If they didn't exist, then there wouldn't be this drive for inter- the entertainment industry to continue to grow. But how they critique is really the issue, right? And so that's why we like viewers critics choice reviews better than we like the movie critics Mm. choice reviews because viewers will tend to be softer Mm. not that that's always a good thing but here's my point okay the inner critic is probably trying to get your attention so if you're hearing yourself say i don't want to go to this social event because i am um super awkward in conversations and i know that because every time i'm there there's like these long awkward silences or people will look at me strange or I won't know what to say or how to respond. Or I'll have things to respond, but I don't really have the courage to say it because I don't want to like seem rude like I'm interjecting or something of that nature, right? You'll hear all this type of language inside of your head. Oh, the whole big long spin out over something that hasn't even happened. Well, but isn't that the truth about yes. what people do That Absolutely. all the time, right? Or the mm-hmm. same thing is true about the gym. I think even Clarissa mentioned it as an example. She said something about if I'm wanting to start something new like the gym, for example... Um, what, what's the, what's the inner critic saying? I'm out of shape. I can't even run around the building. You know, I'm not going to be able to hang. They're all going to be watching me. This shirt fits me too tight. That wasn't her language, but these kinds of language Mm -hmm. things happen in our brain. And what happens is over the span of time, that becomes the norm on how you talk to yourself. Mm -hmm. So here's, what's really cool. There's this movement, I think, coming across our culture finally about kindness, being kind to people. And it's happening in response to a whole lot of violence and aggression mm-hmm. and negativity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is good that it's happening. It's definitely slower than the violence. But what we are advocates for, a lot of us are are being kind to other people. We're we're pretty we're pretty aware of that. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you're not kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you know, mom, our mother told uh, me one time that when she was pregnant with each and every one of us, which has translated to what I have prayed for my own kids that she prayed that her children would learn how to love God, that they would learn how to love themselves, and that they would learn how to love the people around them. And loving yourself often culturally comes in the form of narcissism. Mm. And so we tend away from it because we're scared that we're going to look like jerks, Mm -hmm. you know. But the reality is is that we have to have that self-acceptance in order to be able to love the people around us. Or culturally, our self-love is conditioned to be predicated on performance, like, you can be proud of yourself when you look a certain way. You can be proud of yourself mm-hmm. when you win the trophy, when you get the promotion. You know, that's why there's all these stereotypes about mothers and mothers-in-laws, you know, kind of being like, oh, she's dating a doctor. Oh, he's a lawyer. Oh, you know, she's doing great. She just made partners. She got a corner office or, you know, like we make fun of moms who brag about the accomplishments of their children because it flattens us. It two dimensionalizes us because that's the cultural, that's the cultural definition of value Mm -hmm. is, is performance based. Exactly. Um, 
And so what we need to do is just kind of, we need to tweak the way we critique ourselves as opposed to stopping the critique. Because again, the critique may be trying to motivate us into something. So here's how I do this. And here's what we talk about sometimes in my office. You're going to think it's cheesy. And I say this at the beginning of all, every time I do this with my clients, I'm like, y'all, this is cheesy. And if you do this, it's not going to magically retrain your brain. But the goal is for us to start with an awareness that you're even talking to yourself this way. Because likely it's so ingrained, you don't even hear it. And if anybody spoke to you the way that you spoke to yourself, you would hear it immediately. Mm -hmm. So wear a rubber band on your wrist and you're just going to start getting in. And most of you, if you're women who wear hair ties anyways, or bracelets or something of that nature, you're just going to start getting into the habit of flicking it when to to associate yourself with some language you just heard in your brain that you would not say to your mother, sister, best friend, daughter, daughter. That is so smart. You just need to start paying attention like, oh, it just happened. Uh Oh, it just happened. Because in my office, I'll do it. I'll let them go on after I've built rapport with them for a while. And then I will do a tally mark on my paper Mm -hmm. and I'll turn it around and show it to them. We're on like 18 and I'll say, how many times do you think that you just used like a criticizing comment about yourself? And and most of them are like, I don't know, seven or eight. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we just did 18. Yeah. And I'll try to go back and remind them of that. So it's just, you want to get aware that that it's even happening first amen flick the rubber band um then really smart (laughs) then once you've flicked the rubber band again it's not going to retrain your neural pathways so then you're going to have to get into get to work and what that's going to look like is we call it self-distancing but really you're going to replace the first person pronoun that you were using which is you are too lazy you are going you're going to probably fall when you go into that gym you are not you don't have the experience that the that you need in order to get this job that you want mm-hmm. you 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 you're going to replace that first person pronoun with a non first person pronoun mm. pronoun so get yourself away from you basically mm-hmm. the picture is like picture you and the ghost of christmas path standing up on the balcony and y'all are watching this life right together and so you'll say things like she is not good enough or he is not capable of blank oh that'll make you feel bad Quickly, because now you're talking about somebody else. A real live person. Exactly. It happens to be you, but dissociate that for a second. Exactly. Yeah. And once you see that you're talking about somebody else, from there, then I want you to try to come up with the counterproof. So it may be true that you have failed. You may have tried a gym membership a number of times, gone for the promotion. You may have tried dating as an adult in this very difficult social media world and you've hit ground, hit ground, hit ground, hit ground. And so you have all this proof that supports whatever it is that you believe, right? You're too lazy. You're too this. You're too not good enough. You're, you're not good enough is the basic of all those things. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. Even if that's true, that you're not good enough to do X, right? Which would be the gym membership or whatever, because you have all this proof. I just want you to counter that by looking at what is the alternate proof about who you are as a person too. So, okay. For example, um, if we're using, you know, meeting friends as adults, which mm-hmm. is su- which is an example that Clarissa made, and it's really hard, right? Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. say things like, the pool has rapidly decreased. People are set in their ways, and they don't really want to make friendships. The only friendships that I have are from childhood. We can't make new friends. I don't want to sell myself. It's really awkward. I'm I'm I'm. Strange. I don't want to appear desperate. <laughs> I don't want to appear desperate. Exactly. Okay. If all that's true, then do you have one friend at all? Likely, you're going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And I might say, okay, well, why is that friend still your friend? And you might say, 
oh, because they've been my friend since I was 15. What, is there some unwritten rule that I didn't know about that they can't just fall out of friendship with you? Because also there's probably friends that you've had at 15 that you're no longer friends with. Mm -hmm. So you can't use that as an argument as to why they're still friends with you because it's not consistent. So then why might they still be friends with you? Insert positive quality here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I am funny, mm-hmm. I'm loyal, I am mm-hmm. entertaining, whatever it is that I am, mm-hmm. are the same attributes that are going to allow for these uh, encouragement to create mm-hmm. these new friendships. Does that and make sense? even if you can't think of any, I am someone that she chooses to stay in relationship with. So it stands to reason that someone else will therefore choose to enter and stay in relationship with me. Exactly. And, and also just be really careful about those concreted statements. So I am not good enough is done. Like that's like you saying that I'm a bad mom. That means that in all cases, I am a bad mom. Well, the truth is I act like a bad mom sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I am also a really good mom a lot of the time. And Mm -hmm. the same is true about everything I do in my life. Mm -hmm. So don't be scared to fail. You're going to fail. Be... It is not that you are fail. You are a failure. It is not indefinite. It's not a concreted, no changeable statement if you have failed. That's right. That's right. I love the idea of, first of all, noticing when you're doing it. So starting starting the discipline of becoming aware of how often you actually do this. Mm-hmm. And then what you said, distance yourself from the you pronouns, right? Like so self-distancing. Yeah. Get away from this yeah. is me. And talk about her for a minute. Yeah, so she is going to quit her membership if she joins this gym because she always does. Mm-hmm. You And then you would quickly realize that that's not something you would say about somebody. Exactly. You would encourage them. You know, oh, no, you got this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I love the expect, I think, I think what you just did is let us off the hook because it, it's, there's guilt over the feelings that you feel. Um, so, you know, I can start to talk negatively about myself and then I can immediately feel bad mm-hmm. that I'm talking bad about myself. But, like, that's why these questions came in because yeah. I, I feel like they're kind of silently, parenthetically saying, I always talk bad about myself. And I feel bad that and I, I talk feel bad, bad about that myself. I talk bad about myself. Right. Which, so let's just lift the expectation. We all do it and it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you broken. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. It's well, part of a defense mechanism. Like you said, we just have to, we have to notice when we're doing it and then have some tools for how to move through it. Exactly. It's not only just human, the defensive mechanism, the defense mechanism piece of it is it's actually a promoter. It's mm-hmm. trying to get you to go, gr- go grow, to grow. And that's a beautiful thing. We mm-hmm. never want to shut down the ability mm-hmm. or the want or the desire to grow. Mm-hmm. It, so your problem is not that you were critiquing. Your mm-hmm. problem is that you stayed in the wheel of critique mm-hmm. and to get out of it is to sell is to distance yourself that you are that critique. Mm hmm. Does that make sense? I love that. Did we cover that whole one? I sure hope so. I think we did. We got a couple to get to, so let's jump. I know, and I got to go pick up my cheerings. All right, so another question that I had come from a couple of different angles was Candice on Instagram asked what my thoughts and feelings were about at-home gut biome testing. And I think what she meant was stool testing because that's normally how that would be accomplished. So you would use a laboratory that does that sort of thing, and there are several, and then so you would order a kit. So you would pay, I don't know, somewhere between two and I'm going to say $500, depending on how much analysis you want them to do of the stool sample. So they can just test it for a couple of things and it would be cheaper or they can do like a full GI map panel of the sample and then that would cost more. So that's why the cost variety would be so different as to which which analysis you're paying for. But they would send you a kit and then you would go to the bathroom, take your own sample and it'll give you all the instructions for how to collect the sample and you would put it in these things and then mail it back off as per they the directions. They tell you what to do. 
So that's what Candace was asking about. I'm going to I'm going to get to that. But then another similar question came in via email where a listener was asking how I feel about DNA testing for nutritional guidance. So that's sort of like 23andMe is probably one of the more famous ones because they're advertising on TV and they've I've seen billboards on highways. So I think they're really going after kind of a mass market. Um, but there are a bajillion companies that are doing this same sort of thing. And so I think what she was specifically asking for was like, so if there's individuality between each of us, if I have a different, if I have different genetic kind of snips that would, that would mean that I would do better on a certain diet or that I need more of certain foods than someone else or whatever, is it, how beneficial is it to get that type of information? So I'm just going to talk about testing here for a second. So with regard to Candace's question on the at-home stool testing, where you would be looking at your gut microbiome, if you if you have the money or if you want to spend the healthcare dollars that you are you know are already spending on other practitioners presumably i i actually think that this is a really good option i did it for my kids when they were really little because my now 9 year old um, has always kind of had some chronic allergy symptoms and my then i forget how old my young my daughter was at the time that i did it um, but she had some pretty severe um seborrheic dermatitis behind her ears um like they would crack and bleed and it was just it was really painful for her and whenever we would use a steroid cream it would it would clear up but i didn't want to continue introducing those chemicals into her body and so if there was a way i could get to the not to mention the fact that just because something is manifesting one way doesn't mean that and, and then all of a sudden it magically stops. Like I figured she would probably grow out of it, but I wanted to know what was in her gut that was making it manifest that way. I wanted to know the root cause. So I did stool testing on my toddlers when they were little. And um, the information that it came back with was really helpful because I was able to determine if they had parasites, for instance, which is something that I would have seen um, like a naturopathic physician about, about how to do a parasite cleansing protocol for a little one. Um, that was not the case with them. Those were all negative. And I did not pay for the full like $500 GI mapping. So I probably could have gotten more information if I had done the more comprehensive panels, but it was my first time. So I just kind of wanted to see what I was in for. What it did come back with is that they do not have the allergy antibodies for the gluten or the dairy or the corn um, proteins. And so that was really helpful for me to kind of relax a little bit because at that time of my life, I was really, really black and white about foods. I had sort of decided that all great, I was like, hardcore paleo and really thought that the food system was killing us slowly and there was no hope and just very fear-based kind of restrictive time in my life when I was learning all of these scary things about food. Um, and they were my babies and they were little and I was new at it. Um, so seeing that they weren't technically allergic to the proteins really helped me relax. That does not mean that gluten is a food in our home that we eat very often. That does not mean that I buy low quality dairy when they have, they don't eat a lot of dairy. And when they do, it is organic. It is full fat. If I can get it raw, unpasteurized like cheeses and um, butter from our farmer and stuff like that, then I always go for raw. But the point is I knew that they, it wasn't an allergy to that specific protein. So that was helpful information for me. It kind of helped me relax a little bit. So in, uh, say, Candace's case, a, a stool t 
a stool test, I, I don't think it's necessary. Like whatever your health challenge is, and let's, let's say, I, I don't know what her, what her symptoms are, but let's say her hair was falling out or let's say she had chronic, um, I don't know, acne or constipation or whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you feel like I've cleaned up my diet, I'm exercising, I'm sleeping. I've taken all the like chemicals out of my personal care products. I've, I feel like I've done all the things Um, but you know, like I, I'm still not getting, I'm not getting the healing or I'm not getting the results that I, that I need to see. Then I I really think if you've already paid a lot of attention for several months, I'm going to say six to 12 and done a lot of healing based work. And you're still not seeing movement in the area of your health that you would expect, then testing could be very helpful. I will say the caveat to that is that you have a practitioner that can help you interpret it. And that is generally the harder part. Um, so the first the first um, prohibitive measure, I guess, would be the money. Um, and then the second prohibitive measure is finding a doctor that is versed in holistic um, kind of understanding because a, your typical kind of gastroenterologist that works in a, in a big, busy, like insurance-based practice um, I, I don't know, I'm not saying they wouldn't, I don't know any that would know what to do with all of that information. They, they don't typically focus a lot on the, the complex ramifications of various different specific strains of, pro- of um, bacteria, yeast, parasites, fungus, stuff like that. So the, the bigger challenge would be finding somebody that could interpret it and help you with a protocol from there. Um, but there is, there are several networks if you just Googled, um, that you could find people that would practice like distance. So it wouldn't necessarily have to be somebody in your area. So if you can afford it and you feel like you've already done all the lifestyle stuff, then I actually think stool testing can be really helpful. Um, And then the other thing I'll say about this similar question about DNA testing for nutritional guidance, that one I'm a little more iffy about. And here's, there's two kind of coin, two sides to the coin. The first, the first argument for it would be that we are, there is such a thing as bio-individuality. Some people need and can handle more protein than I can. Some people need and can handle more carbohydrate than I can. So the factors that would change, um, you know, how we respond to things are like bajillions. Like we don't, we haven't even discovered all the ways that we are different as humans. So our, our, thumbprint, you know, like completely unique bio-individuality would lend itself towards testing being a good thing because then you would find out your nutritional idiosyncrasies. You are having a hard time methylating B vitamins, for instance. And so we know that you need to take a pre-methylated form of B vitamins now that we know that, or you have some heavy metal toxicity. So you really cannot eat canned tuna as long as you live. That's not a good idea for you, you know, or Whatever, so you can start to make some more some more fine-tuned choices when you have more information. But here's the other side of that. Again, it's not cheap. And what I think it forsakes is the field of epigenetics. So when we're just looking at genetics, that's your DNA, what you were born with, the stuff you can't do anything about. But there's this emerging field of epigenetics that is telling us that your genes are not your destiny. And there are so many other factors that would come into play as to whether or not a particular gene is expressed or not. And that would be things like how you live your life, your stress loads, your relationships, your social connections, your sleep, your the overall micronutrient density of your diet. You may think because you don't eat Cheetos and smoke cigarettes that you you know have a good diet, but 
there we need to have like fermented foods and fatty fish and broth and really deeply pigmented lots of leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables and I just don't know a lot of people that eat that way so there's probably a lot of room for improvement on the diet front Um, you could have some low-level infections you could live in an area that has really polluted water and air and you don't even know it Um, so all that is to say, all of the things that um, that are in your life would determine whether or not certain genes are expressed and how. So I think we give, giving you information that says you are lactose intolerant or you um, you you're zinc deficient or whatever, like that that could be empowering. It could be helpful if it helps you design like a short term protocol that could dig you out of a hole, you know, for a couple months. But what I don't want it to do is. Um, have you put a label on yourself? Does does your answer change if it, if the goal or the want is weight loss as opposed to um, correcting a negative symptom? That's a great question. I would be more I would be more friendly towards testing when it comes to symptoms versus weight loss. Um, but just because I think our weight loss culture has us panic about that, like I have to lose this now. So let me just test my blood, test my stools, test my saliva. Like, let me find out everything I can find out and then eat the exact right foods at the exact right times and take the exact right supplements. And I, I really think that that's sort of missing the forest for the trees, because the if we have fat to lose, there's probably a whole lot of factors that um, that you already know about that could change with regard to sleep, stress, nutrient density. But that would have to be like that. I think what what we run in what you run into a lot is people feel as though they have tried to change those things. Right. And maybe it's just not for a long enough pattern. So that's back to the potentially it needs to be a more consistent basis for like a six month period. Yeah. Not yeah, like yeah, yeah. super strict, but yeah. So I'm not against testing at all, but I'm just not always for it because it's expensive. And this would be for nutritional testing, stool testing, um, breath testing, hormone saliva testing, like all the testing. It, It can be really helpful information because we are also unique as individuals. But the challenge will be in having somebody create a protocol for you based on your results. The challenge will be in coming up with the money to pay for these tests. Um, and then also not letting it be like, oh, I'm a person who has this genetic thing. So I am therefore like broken or, you know, you can, I think it can kind of put you in a, the more, the more you know about yourself is not always better. It can put you in a disease state of mind. Um, whereas that might've been information that you didn't have previously and you could have managed it just fine by working on your stress loads and changing your workouts and drinking more broth or whatever. I don't mean to be flippant about it, but Um, I just think there's a lot we can do to take care of ourselves that doesn't require us knowing the millimoles of magnesium, for instance. So here's what I will say. There are three resources I'm going to point you to for doing your own like kind of food intolerance or nutrient testing, I guess. One of them is a cheat sheet that a nutrition researcher named Chris Masterjohn has created, and it's a it's a paid product. I can't remember how much it is. I want to say twenty bucks. I'll put it. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, and it is not a single page cheat sheet. It's like a seventy three or seventy eight page quote unquote cheat sheet. Um, but it go it helps walk you through basically how you would go about determining all of this for yourself. It's an incredible document for self diagnosis, self-reflection in terms of figuring out where you might need more of more of certain nutrients and how to get them. So that's one resource. Another thing is I would have people Google what is called the COCA, C-O-C-A, 
pulse test. This is a, a tool that has been used in chiropractic and alternative healthcare for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, although it was not called COCA pulse testing until Dr. COCA put his name on it and figured out this whole method. But basically what you're doing is you are placing an item that may be considered problematic to you on the tongue and waiting for the brain to sense it, and then your pulse may or may not elevate in response to that food determined by whether or not it's an, it's considered offensive to your body. So if my body is maybe not allergic to corn, but, but there's some intolerance to it and I put popcorn or some other corn, a corn chip, um, on my tongue, I don't even have to swallow it. And then I test my pulse. My body is going to react. Um, so if my pulse heightens, um, by more than like six points over the course of what its normal baseline should be, then I would know that that is a food that my body is having a stress response to. And I would do well to remove corn products for a a couple of weeks, two to four weeks, and then reintroduce and see what happens. So I would Google the COCA, C-O-C-A, pulse test, and there will be blog posts where you can find instructions for how to administer that to yourself. And then the last thing I would say is there's a blood glucose test in the back of Rob Wolf's latest book, Wired to Eat. Um, It's an excellent read for anyone who not only wants to lose fat, but just wants to understand the brain mechanics as to why um, we crave certain foods, why it's harder for some people to lose weight than others. Just there, there's a whole lot of neurological and hormonal information in that book, and it's written for the layperson. Rob Wolf is really, really adept at writing um, intense scientific material, but in a really sarcastic, funny, um, easily broken down kind of way, approachable way. So Wired to Eat is a book I would highly recommend to anybody. And at the back of it, he recommends that you go to like your local CVS or Walgreens or whatever and buy like a finger prick um, glucometer, like the, what a diabetic would keep at home and teach yourself how to test your own blood. Um, it's not pleasant. Um, it hurts a little bit and um, it's a little bit of data mining, but it's a lot cheaper than going through a practitioner and doing blood testing that you may or may not have a trusted person on the other end to help you interpret and come up with a protocol. So the blood glucose testing in the back of Wired to Eat is another really great way of kind of self-diagnosis. That's awesome. So those are the three things I would say about that. And back to Candace's question about at-home stool testing. Um, there are three providers that I've used in the past. There are many, many more, but the ones I'm familiar with and have used are Great Plains, Um, diagnostic solutions, and doctor's data. So those are three companies that you can just kind of look into, price check, um, look at at customer reviews, and figure out if it's, you know, usable in your state and all that kind of stuff. So those are the three companies I've used before for stool testing. Brilliant. And you'll probably link those as well in the show notes. Totes, my goat. Totes. Okay. When I when I text my friends and I say totes, I put the little bag, the little purse bag emoji next to it. <laughs> of course you do. I had to explain to dad what totes means because I said it. I said totes. He goes, I don't get it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. All right. So I know that you guys are sick of hearing the sound of my voice. Um, Haley does have a question that she's going to address in a minute. But before she does that, there is a whole other section of questions that came in regarding hormones and adrenals and metabolism and thyroid that I really need to get to. So if anything I just said interests you, strap in. Yeah. And again, you know, the point of this podcast, 
episode is for us to be able to speak to you guys and we've had these really awesome questions but these are these are big big questions so they require kind of a lot of information yeah and there are things that i would cover over the course of of, of an hour to 90 minute session with somebody so, so we're, here we go we're trying our best to truncate it okay so the first question um was from a listener on instagram nancy that said can you give just kind of like a simple meal guide with regard to like how many grams of protein per meal would i eat and which kinds, how many cups of veggies would I eat and which kinds, um, just kind of like a simple way of kind of planning out some meals. Now, what I'm going to get to in it, so I will, I will do that just kind of for everybody, like a generic way of kind of measuring out food. If you want to know if your plate is balanced, um, but specifically she was asking in terms of somebody who is menopausal or postmenopausal and is just trying to lose some fat. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on, um, hormones and cortisol to specifically talk to that point. And then it sort of goes along with another question that came in, um, from another listener that emailed me and said something along the lines of how do you, with, with regard to maybe some dysfunctional or tired, um, adrenals after years of yo-yo dieting, um, and what I believe to be a damaged metabolism, how would you go about fixing or reversing that? And in my mind, those questions are related, but the mechanisms that are at play are similar, even though my, my adrenal emailer, um, listener is not specifically referring to the hormone shifting that would occur around or after menopause. Um, nevertheless, the stress hormones and the way that that, that all works um, is kind of similar. So that's why I'm going to sort of answer them together. But first, let's talk about a simple meal guide. So it's sort of difficult. This is a gigantic caveat because it's sort of difficult for me to say you should eat this many grams of protein, this many cups of veggies, this many grams of carbs, or this many grams of fat, because that is so highly individual based on your age, your body weight, your goals, your activity, your sleep, your stress loads, all the things. So uh, I, I will never say to every single one of my clients, you should all eat 100 grams of protein. You should all eat 50 grams of carbs and, you know, blah, blah, Which blah. Which is good. But if as the person on the other end of that, because there is no one answer, when you're going to look for these answers, you're, you're so overwhelmed because nobody's telling us I know. a general idea. Can we just get a pinpoint? Uh, I know. So I, I know. respect the question. I do. I do, too. I feel for you. I hate when I go looking for something and the answer is it depends. It depends. It's, yes. Uh, it's, it totally depends. It's, <laughs> I'm with you. It is so annoying. Um, so I'm going to do my best. My, my major hesitation is that, um, women culturally in this, in this cult, in this country anyways, chronically under eat calories and chronically under eat protein in particular. So if I say something that is either less or more or, or, or is around what you're already eating and you feel like I'm giving you permission to continue eating something that is too little for you, that is not what I am doing. So that's my hesitance. Um, but I also don't want to tell people to eat so much that they end up gaining fat, you know, so sure. because there is a there's a balance there. But here's how I would roughly figure it out. So I there are some decent calculators online. There's a, there's an equation called catch McCardle. It's K-A-T-C-H hyphen M-C-C-A-R-D-L-E. Catch McCardle equation is sort of the industry standard in terms of like finding like your calorie count for your for your weight, your age, your gender. They're decent. There's a gigantic margin for error, but it's it's fine. So Google the Catch McCardle thing, find out, you know, based I'm a woman, I'm 38 years old, I weigh 140 pounds, um, how and I work out five days a week. Um, how many, how many calories roughly do I need? It will 
every time I've ever done it, it gives me somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 1700, depending on what I say for the inputs. So it's going to spit you out like some sort of number. And then if you're trying to lose fat, you would and on some of the calculators, you can say like, I want to lose fat quickly or I want to lose fat moderately or I want to lose fat slowly. So I would always pick slow or moderate, never fast, because it's going to slash your calories down so far that you will end up damaging your metabolism. So I'm going to get to the simple meal guide, but I want to say something about metabolism that applies to all of these questions that I just mentioned real quick. And that is what I need people to understand is the way metabolism works. Your body is so skilled and so brilliant at keeping you alive. That is its only concern. Your body is not concerned with keeping you in a size six or making you lose cellulite or any of any of the things that we might think are important. Your body does not think it is important as long as you are alive. So here's what would happen in a in a hunter gatherer kind of situation, which is really where our brains are. We have not we have our our human mechanisms have not evolved past the way that they were created when we were hunter gatherers as a species. So the way it would work is we're wandering around trying to find buffalo or, you know, whatever, the, whatever the food source is, or we're traveling around trying to find um, land that will grow vegetables or whatever it is. So we're trying to find a food source and there's going to be a lot of time in between. And so your body has become really, really good at conserving energy because it does not know where its next meal will come from. So you have to keep in mind that the industrial revolution and the um, chemical revolution that have happened over the last, say, 100 years or so, where we have this explosion of available food at all times in every corner of the world. Um, well, not every corner, but mm. of the of the developed world, um, of the wealthy world. That that is so that is so recent compared to your genetics. So your body still operates as a hunter gatherer, even though it now no longer has to worry about where its next calorie is coming from. It still works like that. So it will conserve energy, which means that it will start to burn less calories while you are at rest or even while you are moving, if it senses that it's not going to get enough. So when we diet when we undereat, when we slash our calories to a thousand or whatever it is, 1200, and we're subsisting on a very, the smallest amount of food we can get by with in an effort to lose fat, your body will start to say, oh, there's not enough stuff coming in. So I'm going to quit burning so much. Mm -hmm. So it will decrease your metabolic rate. And so now you go for your 5k run, you go to your orange theory class, you sit at your desk and, you know, work or whatever. It's going to, it's going to slow down the rate of energy that it is allowed allowing you to expend in order to protect you. So the moral is we historically and culturally have thought that to eat less equals to burn fat. But the reality is, is that by doing so, you freak the body out and it stores it potentially. Long so run. let's eat more. Long run. So exactly. So we have to, we have to think long game when so it comes to fat loss. So what does that look like so, in, in macros? So what I, yeah. I, I say that most people need somewhere between, um, I'm going to say 0.7 to 1 gram of protein per pound of lean body mass. One gram of protein per pound of, what's lean body lean mass? Lean body mass is your bones, your muscles, your organs, everything except your fat. So not what I step on the scale. So not your whole entire body weight when you step on the scale. So let's say I weigh 140 pounds. Maybe I weigh 145. Maybe I weigh 150. I don't, honestly don't know. Um, let's say I weigh 140 pounds. I don't I don't need 140 grams of protein because that would be like nearly impossible for me to eat. I wouldn't be able to chew and digest that much protein in a day. But what I would want to find out is approximately how much of my body body composition is fat. 
And so there, again, those are things you can find out on the internet. You can look at pictures. Um, you can measure yourself with a seamstress tape. There's a variety of ways to figure out approximately how much body fat you have. Let's say we're working with about a 30% body fat. So that would mean I would take 70% of my 140 pounds. That would be my lean body mass. And that's how many grams of protein I would shoot for in a day. So I don't know what that number is. Let's, I don't know, let's call it 110 maybe, 110 grams of protein it says I'm supposed to have in a day. Then I would break that down according to how many meals I plan to eat. So three to four times a day to get to 110 grams of protein would mean that I'm eating somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 grams of protein per meal. So if I have oatmeal for breakfast and coffee with almond milk, that's like four grams of protein and I've just wasted one of my meals. How do I know how many grams of protein I'm eating? So there you, I don't like for people that have disordered relationships with food to use apps to track. But if you think you're in a place where it won't mess with your head and you just need some data, my fitness pal and my daily plate are two free apps where you can plug in. I just ate a cup of chicken or I just ate two scrambled eggs or I cooked it in a tablespoon of coconut oil or whatever. You can plug in rough amounts of what you just did and it will tell you how many grams are in it. And let me make a quick note there. I am somebody who does not historically struggle with a relationship to food, although I am related to a whole bunch of people that I love who are, so I'm very sensitive to it. However, I think that just because you feel like you maybe do have a healthy relationship to food and you are just data gathering, which is a place I've been in in my life, it's still after a period of time caused an emotional response. So what I had to, uh, an angry emotional Mm. response or a deprived angry one. So what I had to assess is while you're doing it, still stay in tune with your emotions. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, that's a therapist thing to say, but really, Mm -hmm. you know, I thought I was going to gather data and I was for a while. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then I went South emotionally. So I had to back off Yeah, and then I can come back when I'm okay again. Yes. I'm the same exact way. Okay. So if we're not going to measure anything, if we're not going to use any apps, if that is danger zone, then I would look for protein. That's approximately the size of the palm of your hand. So a gigantic chicken breast is probably too much for a woman of my size, but I could eat a gigantic chicken breast over the course of both my lunch and my say snack meal in between lunch and dinner if I'm doing that. Um, So roughly the size of the palm of your hand in protein. If you're eating eggs or nuts or anything that is like half protein, half fat, you need to keep that in mind. So I would add some protein to those meals, some some lean protein. So when I eat eggs for breakfast, I try to also eat some turkey or some whatever I have left over. you know, just so I have some extra protein to go with it. All right. And then vegetables are completely unlimited. Eat as many colors as like a gigantic bowl of salad, a gigantic bowl of sauteed cabbage or zucchini with your breakfast. Like just try to get vegetables, color, texture in every single meal. You need more vegetables than you're eating. I assure you, even if you're a vegetarian, you're probably eating mostly soy. That's just my experience. So vegetables are completely unlimited. Um, And then fat, we generally say, um, should be about the size of your thumb. So you can do um, a tablespoon of butter or coconut oil when you cook. You could do a piece of bacon. You could do um, a handful, a small handful of almonds. You could do a quarter of an avocado. Um, But that depends on how much you're, on how many times you're eating and how much carbohydrate you're having. The less carbs you're eating, the way more fat that you need. 
So protein is going to stay about the same over the course of your meals, but fats and carbs are the ones that need to kind of like dance around each other. If you're having a whole bunch of rice, then I would not also eat a whole bunch of avocado. If you're having eggs and bacon and avocado for breakfast, then I would also not have a big bowl of fruit or oatmeal or cereal or anything like that. And the point is, is there's some fluidity. So not to get legalistic and black and white about, okay, did it hit my thumb? Because that's going to create a negative emotional relationship to it. However, when you're pouring coconut oil on top of your veggies that you're about to put into the oven, you probably are pouring a handful as not unknowingly. So just to be a little bit more aware. Yeah. Yeah, I'm way more concerned that women eat more calories and more protein in particular. So I don't know if that answered um, the question with regard to a simple meal guide. Um, But what I want to get into now is with the whole metabolism thing and the hormones or whatever, because really why that that listener was asking that question was the second half where she said for someone that is postmenopausal and is trying to lose approximately 10 pounds of fat. Um, So. And, and she also mentioned that um, I think she's on a pretty low calorie diet. I think about a thousand is what she said. And um, that that seems to be where she's stuck. She doesn't want to eat that little amount of food. She would like to eat more. She's hungry. She has low energy. Um, she has a hard time recovering from her workout. So she knows she needs more food and she wants more food. But every time she tries to break out of that, I think she feels like she probably gains some fat. I'm guessing based on what she said. Um, so here's what I'm going to say to both this listener and the one that emailed me about fixing a broken metabolism after years of yo-yo dieting. Remember what I said about that hunter-gatherer protective mechanism that your body will downregulate the amount of, of energy that it expends in order to protect you when not enough is coming in. So here's what happened when I did my bodybuilding show three years ago. And I was slashed down to a thousand calories before my show. And I, I lost 15 pounds in as many weeks. And um, I looked great by the world standards, but I also lost my period and I cried all the time. And my husband and I fought almost every single day. And I still looked in the mirror and thought that I looked fat. It was a completely dysfunctional, disordered place to be. And when I look back at those pictures of myself, I feel like a freaking supermodel. Like I looked incredible. And at the time, I didn't see it. I looked in the mirror and did not see it. I was a textbook case of body dysmorphia. And you went into it expecting that that might be the case and it still captured you. That's right. I even knew that that was probably going to happen. I was self-aware and it still happened. But here's my point. Coming out of a super low calorie deficit like that, if what I did was I, I just started, I just said, the hell with this. And I'm going back to eating my nourishing foods. This is crap. I hate feeling like this. Uh, This is not healthy emotionally, whatever. So I just totally started refeeding myself all nourishing foods, eggs, coconut oil, you know, leafy greens. Like I went back to my normal diet. It's not like I went cheeseburgers and French fries off the rails. I may have had a couple of those, but I remember some chips and salsa. Yeah. A lot of chips and salsa. (laughs) My brain was, was emotionally refeeding itself. Um, but here's what, and and my point is that I went back to my normal caloric load and I gained 20 pounds in about, I'm going to say two weeks. I was going to say less than a month. It was fast. It was so fast. So the better way to have done that. And what I'm going to suggest to these two listeners is to do what is called a reverse diet. And that is where you will slowly ramp down your cardio and metabolic conditioning workouts and slowly ramp up your calories. If you do either one of those two things too fast, you will gain fat. And even though that's not the end of the world and it will probably come back off as your body is rebalancing itself, it can be fear inducing and discouraging and not likely for you to stick to it. If you've ever learned how to drive a stick shift car, it's like this. (laughs) Don't pull off the 
off the clutch too fast because you'll stall and don't push on the gas too fast because you'll stall. That's right. It's a crazy medium. That's right. Slow medium. All right. So the body's natural response to long-term calorie restriction, dieting, or whatever, or or an, even an increased expenditure of calories, like through over-exercising or overtraining, the body's natural response to that is to conserve energy by reducing your output. So what you would need to do in that situation is rein in the exercise. Does it, that mean per day? So if I'm working out five days, maybe cut it down to four and then cut it down to three? Or does that mean how hard I'm working out on the five days? Great question, and probably both. Okay. It depends. It depends. <laughs> so maybe, how much you're doing? Yeah, if you're go, if you are if you're doing a crazy ton amount of cardio, let's say for example, or yes. cardio related exercises. Yes. Let's say it's a 45 minutes. Yes. That you're doing cardio, you would cut that down to 30 minutes. Yeah. So let's first. say let's say you're taking a class that you can't really cut down the intensity. Like if you're taking an Orange Three class or a CrossFit class or something where you're really gonna you know you're gonna go as hard as you can because you're with people that are going hard and you're with a trainer that's pushing you and it's a group environment and it's a set amount of time or whatever. If you want to continue with that path, then you really can't cut down the intensity so much of what you're doing there. You could lower your weights or you could lower the resistance on your machines. Or force yourself to take a couple more breathing breaks. Yes. You could you could tell yourself, I am healing from something. And th- that mindset is going to be key. You're going to have to treat yourself like you either just had a baby or you just had a knee surgery. Like you're going to have to treat your body the way you would treat it if it was healing from a physical trauma because it is. A, a dysfunctioning metabolism is a trauma to to your hormonal systems. So you're just going to have to keep telling yourself, I am healing from something. And I am fine with it if you need to lie to your trainer and tell them you're healing from an actual knee surgery. I don't care what you have to do. Um, But you need to do whatever it takes to convince yourself that you are healing from something and it is imperative that things pull back. So lessen the intensity, but in a place like Orange Theory, for example, or CrossFit, you might lessen the days. You might also have to lessen the days. So that does not mean that you can be sedentary on those days, both emotionally, mentally, and physically. That's a bad idea. So I think seven days a week, you you are part of the animal kingdom and animals need to move their bodies. So I think seven days a week, you should be doing something that requires your limbs to move. And that would be walking. You have to go on a walk every single day, even if you don't go to the gym. Um, That would also be something like yoga, or there's another discipline called Tai Chi that you, your heart rate will not elevate. You will not feel like you are doing a workout, but what you are doing is moving your body in a detoxifying way that still allows your metabolism to reset your hormones to reset, your brain to reset, your stress levels to come down, and you will ultimately lose fat in the long run because all of those mechanisms are coming into alignment. So what I'm hearing you say is maybe in this scenario like this where I'm connecting weight loss to hormonal response, it's not so much a food change if we're if we're already on some of those Unless you're, unless you're under eating, that, right, unless you're under eating, that's okay. a stressful situation to your metabolism <laughs> and it will not ramp up if it can, if it senses danger in the form of starvation. Right. So in addition to that, if you're not under eating, so check that, uh-huh. then move to looking at lessening the throttle on the exercise slowly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I would say weight training is better than cardio. So if you want to go into the gym, if you have a gym membership and you want to go in and do five sets of five fairly heavy back squats or deadlifts, um, you know, do some, do some overhead pressing. If you want to do some 
if you want to do some weightlifting, that is that is really great and um, healthy for your bones and your back and your core um, without causing such a hormonal response as anything that would be considered like metabolic conditioning or and cardio. And if you're concerned with weight, that is going against what you've been taught. So you'll have to convince yourself that just because you're not out of breath does not mean you're not burning calories. That's exactly right. And burning calories is not the goal. Getting hormones into alignment is the goal because that's what's keeping the fat on your body that you don't want anyways. It will long-term emphasis translate to weight loss. Correct, correct. So the other thing to focus on here is de-stressing and sleep. Um, So I know that that sounds so trite because what you want to do is control the food, control the exercise because that's what culture tells you to do. That's what your doctor probably tells you to do. That may be what your spouse is telling you to do. And in many ways, it's the easier thing to control than stress. Yes, that's exactly right. There's action steps associated. I can can choose not to eat this mac and cheese way easier than I can figure out how How do I I lighten the stressful load in my life. Exactly. So you're going to have to get creative. You may have to hire a therapist. You may not, but you have to figure out, you have to treat this as a pillar of your weight loss or your fat loss that is as important or crucial, if not more so than the food and the exercise. So if you have, if you have a stressful job and you're working too many hours and you just don't see another way out of it, look at it as though it is more, and you want to lose those 10 pounds of fat, then look at it as though that is the most important single determining factor in whether or not you lose that 10 pounds. How important is it to you? It, it's important enough to you to maybe starve yourself or to overexercise. Is it important enough to you to figure out a way to either hire some part-time help or put some boundaries in place that say, I'm going to trust that you know this opportunity is not going to go under the water if I if I walk out the door at six o'clock every day this week, or if I put if I turn email off on my phone, or if I leave every Friday and take and and go straight to the beach and walk for twenty minutes before I go home. So what you're speaking to though there is important, and that's kind of this annoying word called balance. And here's what I mean: if you're not in a position where you can quit your very stressful job, or you can divorce your very stressful husband. husband. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Leave a very important and significant relationship. And maybe you're working through marital counseling to get that relationship to a healthy place. But obviously it's very unhealthy, as we know that therapy can do to open when we start. Um, then that means that you're going to have to overcompensate on the relaxation and on mm-hmm. the rest and on the me time, you know, for those areas. So mm-hmm. that goes back to the beach. That goes back to non-guilty sitting on the couch that goes back to all those other ways that mm-hmm. you can create that balance. There's somebody I love very much in my life that kind of wears it as a badge of honor that they um, can't can't sleep and don't sit down well and can't relax. And it's just not how I'm wired. It's not how I'm made. You know, always go, 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 go. And at the same time, this person also struggles um, with the symptoms that come along with a revved up hormonal situation with some anxiety symptoms, with some, like I said, interrupted sleep, insomnia, um, you know, just an overall kind of sense of worry that accompanies that disposition. And I think it would be so helpful if if somebody like that could force themselves to say, how badly do I want to sleep through the night? How badly do I want to not feel this way when I approach a new situation or whatever? Is it important enough for me to discipline myself to sit on the couch and read a book? Or to paint my nails. I know there's dishes in the dishwasher. I know my my person that I care about needs to be taken care of or wants to be, mm-hmm. but I've got to set the boundaries. I'm on the list too. Yep. I'm, I have to be on the list too. And you just have to ask yourself, how important is it that I lose this fat? 
how, how important is it to me? It's, if it's important enough to me to only eat chicken breast and spinach, you know, for the next five meals a day for the foreseeable future of the rest of my life, is it therefore also important enough to me to put sleep and stress just as high as diet and exercise? Because just as we are historically under eating as women, we are also historically overdoing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in life and in the gym, eat more and do less. I know I, that's not what you want to hear, but over a long, small, small changes over a long period of time should repair a metabolism and not cause you to gain fat. And even if you do gain a little bit, you really shouldn't be stepping on the scale every single day. Anyways, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't know be, that. you shouldn't know that those fluctuations are happening because it will mess with your head and derail your efforts. Hormonal balance is the goal. And that is where fat loss happens. Mm-hmm. Amen. Okay. That's a good answer. That was a and that was a that was a lot. I know. Hormones. I'm sorry. Hormones is a lot. I'm sorry. Are you still Ooh. going on hormones? I was gonna be done, but I just realized I wanted to say something about supplements. Can you do it quickly? <laughs> yes, oh. I can do it. I can do it quickly. Okay. okay. So repairing adrenals, getting stress response down. There are some. There are some things that you could totally look at and stock your medicine cabinet up with. Talk to your doctor about and potentially incorporate if your diet is missing these things and our food supply is in general. So the first thing I, so let me list off a couple of things that that could be helpful. Vitamin C is actually really great at lessening the body's oxidative stress, but you do not want ascorbic acid. That is the laboratory man-made version of vitamin C. You want something that says whole food form and is usually derived from either camu camu or acerola cherry. So you can find food grade, whole food form vitamin C either online or at a health food store. So you could talk to your doctor about adding that in. Vitamin D, of course, is all the rage. Everybody is talking about vitamin D. D3. Yeah, D3, not D2. I, we talked about that on a whole other podcast episode. Um, a B complex, it's possible that your Bs are unbalanced, in particular B12 and B5, um, maybe even some 6, B6. Um, so uh, a, again, a whole food form, really high quality B complex vitamin might be something that you want to consider. Um, magnesium is another thing. It's kind of loosely referred to as the relaxation mineral. So it, it's what helps the heart, um, muscle to relax before it contracts. It's what helps your muscles relax and recover from stress and exercise. It's what helps your nervous system relax and get you into a deep sleep. So, um, I don't ever want anybody to overdo something that they are not deficient in to begin with. So I think all supplementation needs to come with some caution, but it's sort of difficult to overdo magnesium. So it's not it's not all that dangerous to play with adding it. And magnesium can come in the form of powder, spray, pill. Yes. Yeah. Calm yep. is a popular yep. one. Natural calm is a popular one. It messes with a lot of people's stomachs, though. I hear about 50% like it and 50% don't do well on it. So there's a variety of different forms of magnesium. Um, but spraying it transdermally so that it absorbs through your skin is one way to sort of bypass digestion. And you can do that before you sleep. Um, and then fish oil can also be helpful for the EPA and the DHA. So I actually like cod liver oil because it includes the vitamin A and the vitamin D all in one with your omega-3 um, supplement. And then um, another couple of things I will say, one is licorice root. So that is an herb um, that yeah, there's some really compelling science that's showing that it's actually making a dent in people's anxiety and um, adrenal repair. So you can get that in the form of DGL. I think it's like deglycerized licorice or something like that. I forget what the DGL stands for, but you can get it in a health food store. You can take it as a tea. You can get it as a like a sweet little chewable um 
So licorice is something to, to look for. It helps the body create DHEA, which is the hormone, the kind of the precursor to all your important hormones. So it can be great for hormone balancing in menopause, as well as, a, as well as if you have a cortisol imbalance from adrenal dysfunction. So licorice, and then the last thing I will say is ashwagandha. That is... That's uh, fun. Do it again. Ashwagandha. 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 It is what's referred to as an adaptogenic herb, which is like the coolest category of plants that God ever made. Um, Basically, how they work is they can sense whether the body is over or under and meet that need. So if you are overproducing um, a, a hormone or a nutrient in... In the uh, nervous system, it can help downregulate that overproduction. If you are underproducing and therefore deficient, it can stimulate the gland to to hyperproduce more. So the adaptogenic herbs are just a really cool plant-based way of helping your body come back into alignment. But they're not all created equal. So if you've tried ashwagandha before, it could be the supplement or the volume or an additive or the purity. It could be a variety of factors not related to ashwagandha itself. So it's worth... Or even your external factors of what was occurring in your life at the time. Yeah, totally. But anyway, those are all all things I just wanted to mention that are worth looking into. And the last thing that you do not want to hear that I will say is that... Caffeine is death for dysfunctioning adrenals, um, for Im- for sleep, for anxiety symptoms, um, for people that are having trouble losing fat because of a hormonal root, which is what we're talking about with cortisol. Caffeine is not your friend. So I hate to say it, but coffee, tea, tea, coffee, chocolate, energy cocoa drinks, powder. Yes, you energy. name it. They, they got to go and just remind yourself that you are healing not forever. It's not forever. You are healing from something like a knee surgery or having a baby like you or a car accident. Like you are healing from something. So it requires a little bit of a trauma protocol. You just did supplements in four and a half minutes. I timed. I'm proud. You are proud? Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's hard to talk about supplements in four minutes. Okay, thank you. It's a very complex. I really thing. tried. I really tried. All right, so I feel good about that. Is it is it my turn? It's your turn. All right, so we're going to talk about, we've got two more questions on the table yes. that we'll get to. I'm not going to apologize for being long-winded. This is good content. I'm not I'm not apologizing. I'm just updating so everybody knows where we are. Two left. You got two left. We're going to talk about grief, and we're going to talk about... Inflammation. Inflammation. Okay, that sounds great. Roll Tide. Okay, yeah. So let's tackle grief first and inflammation last. Or, yeah, I guess last. Um, so we got a question from Vicki on Megan Dorman's Facebook, and she says, how to best help a close friend who is going through an incredible season of loss due to her husband's sudden onset of major health issues within two weeks of his retirement, which has altered their family dynamics. They are nearly, or they are three years into this new normal, and she lives a couple of hours away, so it's not... Like we're right around the corner in order she can't, you know, help her from a close proximity. Um, I'm trying to support her the best that I can. She's often sad, depressed, worn out, and feels as though people have, quote, no idea what she's going through. Suggestions for how to love her through this. I love that question because, you know, she's referencing some loss, but not in the form of death. And I think a lot of times we talk about grief in the form of death. But the truth of the matter is, and we talked about this on the grief episode, um, that loss comes in all forms. And so and in many different types of forms, I should say, and it's not always death. So what I'm going to speak to is kind of a coverall of you walking alongside of somebody who's experiencing loss, which could mean death or it could mean loss to a medical issue, loss to a financial issue, lost a partner um, in terms of divorce, et cetera. 
Yeah, basically, how do I walk alongside somebody that is going through something super heavy is mm-hmm. the context. In Vicky's case, it's a friend whose husband, his health has been kind of stolen from him. So he's a different person and their life is different as they know it. But I think many of us would have friends that are losing parents or that have lost pregnancies or that have have had some sort of health trauma or financial crisis or divorce or, you know, cheating, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of things. And, you know, in the grief episode, we spoke a lot to how you would go through grief. So what I love about this question is this is more pointed at how can you help somebody who is grieving? Um, And I also love that she noted in there uh, that the, the person who is grieving feels like she's alone in this struggle. She feels like no one really understands her because maybe most people are commonly associated with grief in the form of loss. And she's like, well, I haven't lost him. He is here, but I've, we've lost so much of our norm. So how the heck do we go there? Okay. So I'm just going to kind of talk about some if do's and don'ts, if you will, of being the friend or the um, family member, the loved one, the caring person on the other side of the person who is grieving. Um, so one thing that, you know, we spoke about on the grief episode that we, um, that, that I think is really important is talking specifically about the person who is going through, who, who, whomever you've either lost to death, let's say the person has died, or in this case, let's say the husband's name, you know, often we kind of, as the friend or as the person trying to be sensitive to the other person, we tend, we tend to dis- um, we, we, we confuse our sensitivity with like shying away from the person because we feel like if we offer too much or if we talk too much about the person or their old norm or et cetera, we're going to accidentally inflict something. And I felt that way as a therapist. I felt that way as a friend to people who have grieving. I've gotten uncomfortable because I didn't want to hurt them more by bringing something up, bringing their name up, bringing up a situation. But the reality is, is that when a person is pained, they're pained. You really can't hurt them anymore. Um, And so you have a bigger chance at loving them by noting. So in the case of death, um, it's, it's, it's really helpful to a lot of people to use that person's name regularly. How is, you know, we miss Tom and we wish Tom was here. Or in this case, how is Tom doing and what, it, you know, how are you doing handling some of these things that Tom is experiencing, etc. Um, so mentioning them by name, but I will say that not everybody feels that way. I would say that the majority of people I talk to in the grief setting do like to talk about their loved one by name, but it's never hurtful to ask for permission um, to that person. The second do, if you will, is listen, 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 and don't be freaked out by your discomfort. Typically, your discomfort is not alarming you to not do what you're doing it's you know sometimes when you feel uncomfortable it's like an indicator to say oh maybe I shouldn't be where I am or say what I said so you definitely listen to that in terms of being sensitive but in this in the case of grief and loss if you're uncomfortable it's probably because you feel so much love for them that you don't know how to help them and it's it's not that you're doing something wrong so just kind of try to sit in your own discomfort because people who are grieving, they need you to be strong where they feel weak. And if you're panicking, they're panicking. If you're shying away from it, they will tend to shy away from it. So you, they kind of just need you to sit in your discomfort and just let them feel and, and look all kinds of wacky because of what they're experiencing. Um, 
third do, if you will, is call and text these people, especially after the first or second month of the diagnosis or of the death or of the loss itself. You know, we tend to feel a lot of emotion for the people who are going through that loss within that first month. And I, I, I am guilty of this. You know, we recently lost our grandfather and, um, as a, and I felt a lot of feelings about losing him, but I, much of my feelings were directed at his four children, which would include my mom and feeling a lot of empathy for her and what she was experiencing. And I'm not going to lie within about a month of his passing, I was pretty well fixated back on my own life and forgetful some of how she might continue to be grieving. So I had to consciously remind myself to call her on Father's Day and ask her how she was doing or et cetera. You know, so the first month or two is when the attention is there because you're feeling. So make it a point to put a note in your calendar in your phone to call them after that first month or two. I'm so glad you just said that. That's literally what I was about to interject and say, because right now in this very moment is the first time that it occurred to me to check on mom on Father's Day. Yeah, it's a, that's it's like kinda, it never crossed my mind. Right. And I adore her and I'm a good person, but I just don't think like that. Totally. But totally. if I if it had crossed my mind sooner, it's definitely something I would have put in my phone to, to call m- her to make sure that I remembered it in the future. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so just make make a note to yourself to, to check on the people that you love. But again, especially after that first or second month. Um the other thing is I would say find out special events for them, dates like Father's Day, for example, birthdays, anniversaries, and make a reminder in your phone to text them particularly on that day too. My say. best friend from college lost her mom right after we graduated and I still to this day have a pop-up in my phone because I made it an annual recurring thing to that it was her mom's birthday. I love it. And I, I mean, we've been graduated. We graduated in 03 and I still- 15, 20 every, years later, I'm still texting. Yeah, I'm still getting those reminders and I, it, it would never occur to me if not for that. No, of course not. Um, the other thing is nights are typical nights are typically the worst for people who are grieving, whether the person again is, is, is they've lost, or if they're even just in these medical concerns or not just in, but also in these medical concerns, nights are just hard because when the sun goes down and that's true for people experiencing any form of anxiety, when the sun goes down, it's a reminder that a day is gone and that tomorrow is coming. And we don't really know what to do with that information. So I would say that if you're trying to pick a time to reach out, try the nights. I mean, again, ask for permission, but how would you like it if I called you and we had a phone date once a week or so in the evening, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday? Would that be helpful to you? So that's a very specific question saying, what do you think? And you you offered the evenings. Now they can say, you know, evenings are really not good around here for whatever the reasons, but you specific, instead of saying, hey, when can I call? That's too much pressure, which I'll talk about in a second. But hey, how about I call you from six to seven on Tuesday nights, etc. Yes, specific. Um, the other thing is is run interference for them. Depending on how close you are in relationship to the person who's experienced the loss, you might be a good point person, and you may not see yourself that way. But again, ask for permission. Would it be helpful to you if you gave all the people who are flooding your phone or flooding your if social media or whatever is the case? saying very vague things like, we're sorry for your loss, how can we help? Would it be helpful to you if you pointed them back to me and I gave them very specific tasks on how they can love you through this transition? So for example, instead of sending us flowers, hey, it would be really helpful to the Smith family if you guys sent a meal 
or, hey, it would be really helpful to the Smith family. I, you know, I've been trying, I've been in close contact with them trying to keep up with their needs. They're kind of in need, actually, honestly, of gift cards, if you could give any money or et cetera. And I know that might be, feel really uncomfortable for you, especially if you don't see yourself as that close with them. But a lot of people are going to be thinking that. So that means that there's a possibility that no one is doing it. Yeah. Is the point. So be bold and ask. And people truly do want to help. They just need to be told what to do. So I would never think it, if if somebody said to me, "Hey, our friend who just lost their baby could really use some gift cards to blah blah blah," or it would be so helpful if you could just like make some blueberry muffins that she can throw in the freezer for the other kids or whatever, I would be like, "Yes, thank you for the job. I'm on it." Yes, I'll get. I can buy a twenty dollar gift card. Yes, I wanted to help. I just didn't know. I didn't what, know what to do. I needed an assignment. So be so ask the person who's grieving, can I be that point person who runs interference on all the other people in your life? All you got to do is give them my phone number and tell them to text me, mm-hmm. et cetera. Okay, so some don'ts, if you will, as being the friend of the grieving person. Again, don't ask those vague questions. Um, we tend to say things like, I'm sorry for your loss or I'm sorry you're going through this. How may I help you? When you ask somebody who is in crisis a question that is open-ended, that puts them into further crisis. So, you know, in, in the in the therapeutic world, for example, we ask open-ended questions all the time to try to promote the client to be able to identify answers for themselves because we're, we're not your mom, we're your therapist, right? So we're trying to help you figure out what is the best thing for you. But in crisis, that's the one therapeutic time where our intervention changes. And we basically get very pointed with people and say, here is what needs to happen. And that's because the brain cannot cannot process all of that emotion and information. So when you're, so try not to ask open or opening questions like, how can I help? It's too much pressure for them. They don't know the answer to that. And it makes them feel so spiraled. Instead say, Hey, can I make some phone calls for you in this time? Can I, do you need any financial assistance where I could rally the troops and maybe come up with some gift cards of sorts? Do you need food? Would it be helpful to have some freezer meals or send Uber eats gift cards to your house? Um, can I organize some, in, in Vicky's case, and she's long distance from this friend, hey friend, can I organize some social support visits? Maybe, can I, can I contact some of your people who love you and organize a time where they would come visit you? Mm-hmm. Um, or go have a lunch or a co- pull you out of the house for a little bit to have a coffee or a lunch date or a walk date or mm-hmm. something. Um, and, and then, you know, one of the things actually that I think would be really helpful is you planning a visit to go see them if you can. And in that visit, you know, help them understand that you're coming back. And that's, again, after that one to two month mark and say, hey, here's the next time I'd like to be able to come see you. What do you think about me coming on Thursday, July the 1st at 2.30 p.m.? Mm-hmm. You know, like being very specific so they have something to look forward to. I kind of liken this to, I was actually just telling you about this the other day. When my nine-year-old was little, when he was a toddler, he would wake up during his nap sometimes and have like these night terrors. And one of the things that I always used to make sure that I did not do was ask him questions about like, oh, what was it? What, what you know, tell me about it. What was scaring you? What is it about a, you know, whatever. And the, I feel like that sort of applies here because when you're in like fight or flight, which is grief and trauma, um, you, your brain really cannot process questions like out of the clear blue sky. Like mm-hmm. that is asking a lot of a person who is in trauma to be like, tell me about all the details of what is going through your brain right now. Whereas, you know, if you just say, hey, can I come on Tuesday morning or Thursday night? If I give them like a multiple choice and they don't have to process, 
do I even want this? And when would be good? And all the possibilities like swirling in your brain. It's just like, it's too much for them to even wrap their brain around. Yeah. I don't know what I need because I'm, I'm, I'm hurting so badly. Yeah. Um, some other ideas too are some like grief group therapies. Can I research some ones in your area and just give you the information again, no pressure that you would have to attend them, but would it be helpful to you if you had the information at your disposal? So you didn't have to go do all the Googling or can I arrange for me or other people to come do chores, dishes? Like, again, you just, you get so stifled in mm-hmm. grief and you just feel as though you can't move the system. Yeah. And again, I the main thing I would say is to continually talk about the fact that they're grieving. Mm-hmm. And and the, the most, the most common way that we as a culture view the healthy way to grieve is to basically not feel. We say that it's healthy to not cry. You'll hear people say all the time, like, I've had a really good week this week. I haven't cried since Tuesday. Mm. Well, that's not necessarily healthy per se, right? It is if that's your healthy, but the reality is is that you need to feel. So as the friend, allow bring it up. Bring it up constantly. How 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 have you felt today as a result of all the changes that you're going through with Tom? And and that's kind of an open-ended question, but let them see where they go, but then you can get more narrowed. Has it been sad today? Has it do you feel like you've had a little bit any more or less energy, et cetera? The other thing that we tend to do as friends is we try to point them in a negative situation to the positive, right? So we'll say, well, at least he's in a better place. Or are you feeling any more energetic today? We'll kind of pull lead those, them, lead those questions into where they, where we want them to be because it's more comfortable and we think it's the version of health or, but it accidentally communicates what they should be. Yeah, we're telling them, you should feel how I'm insinuating right now. Right, you should be glad that he's with Jesus. <laughs> right. Or you should be, you know, energized, right? Yeah. And so we can't do that in grief because there is no timeline on grief. It could take three, six, 25 months, I don't know. But don't, don't, so don't lead them. Just, just let them feel whatever it is that they're feeling. Yeah, is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's perfect. Um, And then the only, the last, the last don't, I think I just like, jumbled a whole bunch of don'ts in there um is that well actually that is just to encourage them to be able to be allowed to feel mm-hmm. you know i have a friend who's grieving the loss of her father who she who with whom she lost in january so it's been about five months or so and she called me um feeling a lot of feelings about a particular situation in her life that was related to i forget what it was maybe her job or family or something and one of the things that I pointed out to her is you have to keep in mind that you're still grieving the loss of your father. And and of course, it's not like she's forgotten that she's grieving him. She thinks of him very regularly. But it was it was liberating to her for me to allow her to know that part of the reason you're having a hard time with this work situation is also because there is underground grief that is still very much attacking you. And she said thank you to me for noting that that's allowed mm-hmm. to be a factor in something that seems unrelated mm-hmm. because it feels like everybody else is like, oh, he's been dead now for five months. Let's let's move on. Everybody mm. get back to health. Mm. But no, part of the reason I'm freaking out at work today is not all, but part is mm-hmm. because I'm still really pained. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think that is such great. I hope that answers your question, Vicki. Yes, I hope so too. <laughs> I just love, I, I love making it tactile for that. Tactile is not the right word, like specific for that person. Like, yeah. And also, maybe even being a little forceful if that's the kind of relationship that you have. Because as women, I think we're so conditioned to turn down help. You know, like if somebody's, if like if, if my own mother said to me, I'll do your laundry and clean your floors after I just had a, 
a baby or something, I would still feel like, oh, no, 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 mom. I got it. I got yeah, it. I got you it. don't have to do that. Like, it would make me feel bad to sit on the couch nursing my baby, watching my mother clean my floors. Mm-hmm. And it would make her feel all levels of joy. Totally. She would love to clean my floors while I was nursing a newborn baby. Yeah. But I would not be able to give that to her because I've been conditioned to turn it down. Mm-hmm. So just know that the person you're trying to help has been conditioned to turn down your help. So in a loving way, I would I would say, depending on the relationship, maybe be a little aggressive about it. Like, I'd really like to come see you on Saturday unless you don't want me to. But if that's okay, I was planning on being there from 12 to 4. What tasks can we accomplish while I'm there? Yep. And if you, it, it, that's happened to me when I had my child and I was feeling pretty isolated. And you said, I'm, I would love to come over and take him for a very long walk so that you can nap. And I felt all the feelings of guilt about mm-hmm. that. But I needed you to be forceful to make to make me feel like, okay, she's got this. It was really okay fine. to say yes, yeah. to accept it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right, let's jump to inflammation. Inflammation is our last question. Our this final question. Was, um, this was an epic episode. I know it's long, but I hope you've enjoyed it. So the last one came via email, and um, she basically said, what are some ways to reduce or avoid or control kind of rampant inflammation in the body? And when I pressed her a little bit, I said, tell me how it's manifesting and what makes you call it that? Like, how do you know it's inflammation? You know, what, what makes you say that? And she said, well, I've kind of had like this chronic knee pain, chronic foot pain. I feel like I'm bloated really more often than not. So there's also some digestive manifestation there. Think she has some arthritis in one of the knees, um, maybe some plantar fasciitis in in her heel. Just everything just feels really inflamed. Um, and is she was basically saying like, how can I get to the bottom of this or control it or avoid it? So in talking about inflammation, she's absolutely right. That's what it is. Um, Hippocrates is widely considered the father of medicine, and his quotes and his work dates to around four hundred years before. The birth of Jesus, so 400 BC, I think. Wow. I, I could be wrong on those dates, but it's um, it, it's pretty old work. But one of the one of the quotes that's attributed to him is that all disease begins in the gut, and I still very much hold true to that. Thousands of years later, um, so we have to figure out what is going on in the gut that is allowing the immune system to be on hyperdrive, because that's what inflammation is. If I got hit in the face with a softball, what would happen is part of my tissue has been damaged. Cells have been killed when I was traumatized with that softball. So inflammation is the very good, very necessary immune system response to keeping trauma located to a very small area so that dead tissue cannot circulate around your body and damage other parts of the body. It localizes trauma so that your body can clear the the debris, the dead cells, and start the healing process. It contains it. It's like a quarantine. So that's the purpose of inflammation. The way that it sort of gets out of control is when it's on hyperdrive for a variety of reasons I'll get into, and the body really can't shut it back off, and then it starts to spread throughout the body, and it's always on, and that mechanism never gets turned off. So rather than acute inflammation, which is the swelling and the redness of my face when I got drilled with a softball, the the that's good inflammation. Bad inflammation is chronic and systemic all throughout. So some ways that that can happen um, would be, I think there's kind of five categories that I generally tell people this comes from. So it's not, it's not, it's not as simple as being like, oh, you're allergic to gluten. So that's where your inflammation is all rooted in. You could very well be allergic to gluten or you could not. But these, there's five areas where the immune system starts to get attacked. And that is through foods, 
Um, that is by having a leaky gut, which I will explain, and there's a whole episode on leaky gut, um, by environmental toxins and by potentially low level or latent infections that are in the body that we don't know about, um, and then stress. So with foods in particular, the the top like five offending potentially inflammatory food groups that most people do not do well on when it's a large part of their diet are gluten, dairy, corn, soy, and then I would say even like other grains besides gluten-containing grains. Um, so corn would be one of them. Also potentially maybe rice, maybe, rice, maybe oatmeal, oats. oats. Like we just, um, any, any of the gluten-free crackers and pastas, things that are made with really high starches. Brown rice, yeah, yeah. tapioca even. Yeah, so all that is to say, I don't know who's intolerant to what and on what level, but those food groups, when they are removed, people by and large experience relief of inflammatory symptoms. So that can look something very similar to a paleo diet kind of model because in quote-unquote paleo, they would have you remove all grains, all dairy, all legumes, which is all beans, um, and then most sugar. And legumes, beans would include soy. Soy, exactly. So the thing we have to be careful of, I, in my experience and opinion, is that paleo is, is a starting place. It's a template. It's not something that I think that people need to be militant about or religious about or do indefinitely. It's very much a place that you begin and then we can reintroduce from there. But when you're trying to get inflammation under control, Um, Something like that is a great place to start. And if it's overwhelming, if a lot of that stuff is already in your diet and it's overwhelming to think about removing it all at one time, then just start with gluten and do two weeks on that. And then if you fill up to it, remove a different another grain or don't keep the gluten free grains in for a little while and remove um, or remove dairy or take it down to just butter or something like that. So you can you can do it in a titrated way. But so those are the offending foods. And then, of course, we have an onslaught of sugar and um, what I call fake foods. So anything that considered that contains aspartame or any of the fake sugars, man-made, um, no calorie sweeteners. So anything that says zero sugar or low diet. carb or diet, anything that you would have to look at the ingredients on that. Um, and Does that include the oils? Yeah, and so I would also consider anything with canola oil or vegetable oil, soybean oil to corn be corn syrup. Corn syrup, those are all man-made food products. Those are not natural substances and they are very inflammatory to the body. So, getting getting rid of inflammatory foods and increasing anti-inflammatory foods, which would be anything with super bright color, specifically dark leafy greens, which a lot of people don't like, and really darkly bright colored uh pig Minted vegetables and berries. So um, I'm actually okay with people doing like a super greens powder. If you don't eat a lot of leafy greens, I'm not okay with you never eating a leafy green as long as you live. I think that a powder can be a crutch, but if you're definitely not going to eat them or you just know you don't get enough, then I'm okay with it as a substitute. Um, but we got to get some leafies in there. And a greens powder would also contain things like um, spirulina and chlorella, which are two of the most nutrient dense plants ever made. So um, that's just one idea to throw in there, but we also need to be eating and chewing and digesting real whole foods in their whole food form. Um, So that's the food piece of it. With regard to leaky gut, this is 
likely present in somebody that has rampant inflammation, like what this emailer described, where it's potentially in the joints and in the heel and also causing bloating and some digestive, like there was such a variety of symptoms that are inflammatory in nature that it sounds very reasonable to me that the gut is probably also permeable. And what that means is for reasons we don't necessarily know um, from a food intolerance or from a, from an infection or from stress or from a lifetime use of medications like the pill, hormonal birth control, um, antibiotics as a child, um, or even as an even as an adult, just a variety of prescription medications. These can all contribute to start to make the tight junctions of the of the small intestine start to become loose, and when that happens, particles that are um, not all the way digested into their lowest possible form can now pass through the lining of the small intestine and into the bloodstream. So for some reason, I always use the example of a strawberry. I don't know why. Um, but if you if you ate a strawberry and it got digested down to its lowest, lowest food form and you had an intact gut, nothing would be able to kind of like squeeze through the junctures of the small intestine lining until it was as small as a molecule of glucose or vitamin C or something like incredibly tiny and microscopic. But if there are holes there and bigger chunks of the strawberry can pass through, now we have something that is much more bigger and more complex than just glucose in the bloodstream and the immune system no longer recognizes it and flags it as an invader. Um, so now we have strawberries have been flagged and anything that looks like a strawberry that comes through in the future will be attacked and now you're allergic to strawberries. So Leaky gut. Leaky gut. So that's what it looks like. Um, and so that means that anything that passes through digestion has access to your bloodstream, which means it has access to your heart and to your brain. So your immune system is always on hyperdrive because there's all this riffraff coming through that is not supposed to be let through because the gates are loose. The gates are down. So ways to heal a leaky gut would be just like we talked about with the foods, getting rid of the inflammatory ones and upping the volume and the nutrient density of the good ones, of the colorful ones. Um, making sure we're eating enough high quality fats and proteins, um, all that kind of stuff. And then in, in addition, I would say there are some things you can take or chew or buy that would um, aid healing. And that would be things like digestive enzymes to make sure that your food is being broken down all the way before it kind of gets to that place in digestion. A real high quality probiotic to make sure that we have enough of the good soldiers that are out there, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, collagen powder, collagen peptides is great to put in um, tea or water or smoothies um, to help the lining start to repair itself. Y'all, financial tip, add collagen peptides into your Amazon cart because it very commonly goes on sale. Mm. And if you just add it into your cart, you can watch it. And I, I've, I've gotten it on sale a number of times. That is a great tip. Pro tip. That is a pro tip. I love it. Okay. I love it. Um, and then a few other things would be L-glutamine. So that's a powder that you can buy at a health food store and it's just an amino acid. It's already present in your body. So you would just be taking a little bit more of it than what you would normally get through your proteins in your food. Um, and that can really aid healing of the gut. Um, aloe vera, both gel and juice is very healing for the intestine. And if you don't want to just take it like by itself straight up, you can put it in smoothies or tea just like the collagen. Um, and then DGL, I mentioned in a previous question, I can never remember what it stands for. Deglycerized, I think, or deglycerinated licorice or something like that. Um, and then slippery elm and marshmallow root. So that's those are my list of like leaky gut healing supplements. And that is incredibly important when we're trying to get inflammation in the body down. Does it, the collagen, pe collagen it, it's also help, helpful to do the bone broth? 
Yeah, so you will you would also be getting natural collagen that is derived from the joint tissue of whatever animal was used to make the broth. Deglisser. I have no idea how we to say that. We can't pronounce it even if you try. <laughs> I know. So there goes that meme that says if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that one. You can you're allowed to eat this one. I can't pronounce whatever DGL stands for, but still eat it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, so that was leaky gut. The other thing is toxins that is contributing to inflammation, and that includes medications or also, can also be considered a toxin just because they're foreign to the body and man-made. Um, so even though they facilitate short-term healing, in, and I'm glad that we have them over the long term, they could potentially not be cleared from the body all the way and could be toxic to an immune system. Um, mercury in, in fillings or in um, an overexposure to, to fish and things like that. Plastics, lots and lots of pl- drinking out of plastic water bottles. I really, really think that is a bad practice, not just for the environment, but also for your health. Because those plastic water bottles were on a hot truck for hours and hours and hours before they got to the grocery store where they were then refrigerated or to your house when they were refrigerated. So you're drinking out of them cold, sure, but they were heated for a long period of time before they got cold. And that plastic degraded in the heat and all of its chemical toxic components were leached into that water and now we're drinking it. And I just really strongly think that plastic use contributes to inflammation, autoimmune diseases, and cancer. I just, I, I think it's really prudent to get rid of our plastic use as much as possible. And if you have it, don't microwave in it. Yeah, don't microwave in pl- If you are going to use it, just don't microwave in it. My kids my kids took uh, turkey sandwiches to Vacation Bible School today in plastic containers. And, you know, it happens. Fine, I'm yeah. not going to send them with glass. Right. But they're not microwaving it, so it right. is what it is. Um, also, pesticides and GMOs that are in our food supply. So you would do well to buy as much organic and grass-fed and wild-caught as you can possibly afford. And then when your budget runs out for that higher-quality food, then just get the other stuff and don't sweat it. You know, we're not going to stress about... I was able to buy um, organic raspberries, but it meant that I had to buy conventional green beans. Fine. Get like set a budget, get as much organic produce as you can shop off of the dirty dozen list that the environmental working group puts out every year. You can just Google that dirty dozen and clean 15. You can save it as a little image on your phone and you'll always have it with you and shop. Prioritize your budget dollars for the dirty dozen, you know, organic vegetables as much as you can. Then everything else don't just don't lose sleep over it. Um, and then hormones in meat and dairy. So making it sure it's organic. If you are going to eat dairy and when you and on the meat dollars that you're spending, just try to get as high quality as you can. Um, low lying infections, those could be present and you wouldn't necessarily know it. So I would try everything in your lifestyle first, like really just buckle down on the food, the sleep, the stress, the leaky gut supplements, getting toxins out of your house, getting a better filter on your water and maybe in your air, and then maybe going for, for testing to test for things like the herpes virus or hepatitis or Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr. There are a variety of autoimmune conditions that can be asymptomatic for a long time. So there is some testing that you could do, but I would make that a very last, um, last resort after you've tried everything else. Um, and then getting rid of stress. We've talked about in a number of questions today. And the, the important thing to remember about, oh, I'm sorry, I should not say get rid of stress. Nobody can get rid of stress. <laughs> a- acknowledging and mitigating, taking active measures to mitigate the stress in your life. Um, the important thing that I like to call people's attention to here is that stress is not just a feeling. 
you can be stressed even if you don't feel stressed. And even if you do feel stressed, it's bigger than you. It's it's more subversive in your body than you even think it is. So um, it's an inflammatory state and it's really imperative that we get a hold of it because your immune system is suppressed if, if we're in that state. Sleep deprivation is stressful. Calorie deprivation is stressful in addition to all the other things you're probably thinking of. So I've talked about some supplements and specifically in this emailer's case where she's actually having joint pain and feeling bloated and all that. I would also, in addition to all the things that I've talked about already, um, also cleaning up personal care and beauty products. You know how passionate I am about that. That's why I joined Beauty Counter. But there are a number of companies that are doing a lot of good, solid work to remove heavy metals and scary, unregulated toxins from our beauty and personal care products and the cleaning products in your home. So just trying to switch to vinegar and lemon juice and essential oils and um, just conscientious companies as much as you possibly can. Um, and then so what I was starting to say about this email or about the joint pain is that I, I very strongly believe that turmeric and ginger are very helpful. So I would I would use those anti-inflammatory herbs, use it in cooking, take it orally, um, drink the teas. Um, so incorporate that as much as you can and then potentially also some holistic body work like acupuncture, um, massage, things that will bring the nervous system back into alignment, even chiropractic. So um, inflammation is a, is a whole body state and it will require a whole body approach. I love that. Hey, there's a saying in, uh, you know, count on me for sports sayings. There's a saying in baseball and softball, which I grew up playing, that if you're going to go out, you want to go out on, like, the best hit possible. So you don't want to just, like, go out swinging, right? Don't go go out swinging. Or don't go out not swinging, excuse me. So if this was going to be my last episode for a little bit of time because of maternity leave, I'm okay with an almost two-hour episode. I feel really good about it. Like, that was almost a home run. That's right. And I don't care if you have to break it. I mean, um, what's his name? Joe Rogan? He does, like, three-hour podcasts and has bajillions of listeners. Right. And we're so, like, enthralling that you would want to break it up and catch every, every moment. I tell you what, if you were here, you'd want to go hang out with us even longer. Go get cocktails. And don't feel bad if you just checked out a couple because you can guarantee that our mother listened to every second of this episode. <laughs> so we yeah. had at least one faithful fan. At least fan. one listener made it through the whole thing, even though she probably broke it up into four sittings. She probably broke it up. That's okay. She finished. We love you guys. Yes. Goodbye for now to Haley. Goodbye for now, but I'll be back. No question. Can't wait. All right. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.